Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Sarah, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Assistant Editor at Prospect, Emily Lawford, and Helen King, former Assistant Commissioner for the Metropolitan Police and Principal of St Anne's College, Oxford, to discuss an important question. Are the police institutionally sexist? On Monday, Baroness Casey published a report on misconduct in the Metropolitan Police with what she described as hair-raising examples of sexual misconduct, discrimination and bigotry in the force. She found that not only were officers getting away with multiple instances of misconduct, but there were examples of officers evading justice for criminal offences. For the most recent issue of Prospect, Emily Lawford spoke to dozens of serving and former female officers from forces across the UK, including Helen, for a feature about the deep roots of misogyny in the ranks of British policing. Thank you so much to Emily and Helen for joining us. So first of all, Emily, I just wanted to ask, what made you decide to take a deeper look into this issue in your piece? Well, like everyone else, I was completely shocked by Wayne Cousins murdering Sarah Everard when he was a serving officer. And after that, the um, Charing Cross officers' messages came out in which they joked about beating their girlfriends. Another officer said he would happily rape you to another officer. And they made jokes about chloroforming women. And that also disgusted me. And there was another incident where officers were sharing uh, photos on WhatsApp of two murdered sisters. And it just sounded like it was a huge problem that hadn't been written about that much. And I wanted to find out a bit more about it. And I'm guessing that the findings in the review that's come out this week were no surprise to you, given the kind of things that we hear in your piece that female officers told you. What did you think about her findings in the review? No, they definitely weren't a surprise to me. And this this review was particularly focusing on the disciplinary procedures. And what I found from speaking to women was that the disciplinary procedures are really lacking. It's very hard to discipline officers and to sack them. And that's what the review says in extreme detail. And no, I wasn't surprised by it at all. And Helen, as a former officer at a very senior level in the Met and in other forces too, what did you make of the review? I think it's a great piece of work that will help the current leadership of the Met and other police forces across the UK to take forward the reforms that are needed. 
And what I really hope is that Louise Casey's review and discussions such as the one we're having today will encourage people both outside and inside policing to really think and talk about what kind of policing we want in this country, the kind of people that we want doing the the complex, and I think everyone would agree, necessary job that the police have to do, and how we support them to give us the best policing that we, we, the public, deserve. And one of the elements that stood out to me in the report, and I think that's what you were touching on there, Emily, was that it seemed from the outside, and Helen, I'm sure you'll be able to shed more light on this, that police officers who were facing misconduct allegations were entitled to a sort of quasi-judicial process, almost akin to a criminal trial. And that really surprised me as someone with no experience looking into this. Was that something that you experienced, Helen, when you were in the police? What do you think of that element? I have a lot of experience of this. Um, Police officers aren't employees. They're officers of the Crown and they're not subject to most of employment legislation. Instead, their misconduct process is dictated by legislation called police regulations. Um, I think probably originally introduced because obviously because of the nature of policing, the fact that you are enforcing the law on fellow citizens, you are particularly vulnerable to malicious complaints. So the process, as you say, is very legalistic. I worked in professional standards departments on a number of occasions during my career, and I was also panel chair of dozens of cases. Um, I've sacked a considerable number of police officers. And you're right, it is very similar to a judicial process. I've chaired misconduct hearings that have had up to seven barristers in the room. Um, The standard of proof is not the same as criminal law. It is the balance of probabilities but it is a legalistic process. And this is one of the reasons why it can take a considerable amount of time to bring a case to the point where an officer can be sacked. And and what do you think of that? Because it sounds like quite understandably there's a major balancing act there, as you say, you know, there's such a higher likelihood of people making complaints about someone that's pursuing them for a criminal offence. Do you think that this is a problem, as highlighted by Baroness Casey. Do you think the process needs to be relaxed almost in some way? I think it's right for a proper review by people with the appropriate experience and expertise to do that. I think in some ways the system has been made worse over um, the last decade or so, in part, and Louise Casey refers to this in, in her review, because the decision as to whether an officer should be sacked or not is not within the hands of the leaders, the chief constables of that particular force. Most cases now go in front of a misconduct panel where the majority of members, including the chair, are not police officers. And previously, that was a, a chief officer, and that's that's a role I did on, on dozens of occasions. Um, and um, there's a police appeals tribunal which um, no longer has serving police officers on it. And I think that was introduced because there was a view that the police couldn't be trusted to sack their own. But the unintended consequence is that fewer cases are resulting in findings of guilt. Where there are findings of guilt in gross misconduct cases, fewer officers are being sacked. So I think that shows a, a mis. 
confidence in bringing independent people into the process when actually the vast majority of police officers, including chief police officers, absolutely want to rid the ranks of people who can't be trusted to hold the office of constable. That's so interesting. So it's almost the opposite of what people anticipated, that the independent members of the panel were less likely to seek tough action than police officers sitting on the panel. And and that was certainly my experience as well, both in training non-police officers, members of panels, and actually sitting with them. It took longer to explain to them the, the context of the evidence that they were hearing, because obviously they didn't have that direct experience themselves. And my experience was that they were consistently more empathetic with the officer who'd done wrong uh, and perhaps put put undue weight on how difficult policing is. Clearly, policing is difficult, but we have to remember the public deserve the police to uphold the highest standards. And if you have an officer whose reputation is tarnished by the fact they have a, a finding of misconduct against them, that makes them much less useful to the organisation because they can't be part of the evidence chain, because their credibility in court, if they're a witness to a case, is undermined. And to be frank, as a senior officer, you don't want to trust them out on the streets again, having contact with the public if they've shown in the past that they don't deserve that trust. And Emily, we've been talking here about the officers that are doing this kind of misconduct in the way that they should be dealt with. But maybe we should step back a step for a moment and just ask about what are some of the experience of some of the women that you spoke to in the police? Because I know that there's been a lot of discussion about since the Sarah Everard case about how the women in the public feel about the police. But how did the officers that you spoke to, like Claire and like Sue and like Evans, feel about their experiences? Every woman I spoke to had in report told me about instances of sexism they had personally experienced, ranging from sexist comments, being expected to make the tea, jokes about them, to assault. Sue Fish, a former officer, told me she was assaulted by two officers, one of whom was a senior, very senior officer, and nothing was done about it. Claire, another woman who didn't want me to say her surname, an officer bragged to her and told her, makes very lewd, sexist comments, bragging to her. And when she reported it in a, informally, she was then sent out on patrol with him alone in a way that she felt like was a deliberate punishment for speaking out. And when she was alone with this man at night, he refused to speak to her and he walked ahead of her, ignoring her, which obviously made her feel quite afraid patrolling the streets at night if you don't feel like you have a fellow officer supporting you. And um, another woman I spoke to uh, who didn't want to give her real name, uh, she was asked if she spat or swallowed by... uh, another officer and again there was no suggestion of reporting it it was just very they all said it was many of them said it was a very frowned upon thing to do and it's it seems to go against the team spirit of it it's in this dangerous job and therefore camaraderie is really important but the downside of that is sometimes officers who do feel targeted feel like they can't speak out And Emily, one of the things I loved most about your really interesting piece was the way that you looked at the history of women in the police. Helen, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what your experience was like in the Met, not just in the Met, but in the police from when you joined it and how you've seen it change for women officers? Yeah, I thought Emily's piece was fascinating and and a number of the officers she spoke to, Sue Akers, Sue Fish and so on, joined roughly the same time as me in the 1980s. So, of course, the examples she's sites span 
over 30 years. And of course, it's absolutely horrifying that women officers are still on occasions experiencing the sexism and in, in maybe in some occasions in a worse form, as we did back in the 80s when women were a very small proportion of the force of forces. New recruits now are more than 40% women, which I think is a, a great development. And I certainly saw a lot of change during my service. When I joined, there had been no women chief constables. At the time I retired, the top three jobs in, in law enforcement, Commissioner of the Met, Director General of the National Crime Agency, and Chair of the National Police Chiefs um, Council, were all filled by women. And having those role models, having mentors, and I've had many mentors and advocates, both men and women, through my policing service who, who really encouraged me. It's not to say it's all perfect by a long, long way. There's still much to be done. And, it, you know, I think Mark Rowley is absolutely right to be coming out clear and loud about how bigots, misogyny, racism and so on will not be accepted within in policing and, and officers who display these behaviours will be driven out. Um, but we shouldn't underestimate the amount of change that has happened and the support that is there in women's networks, in flexible working practices, in he-for-she champions, in menopause champions within policing. And certainly I've seen attitudes really towards all minority groups change during the 30 years I was a serving police officer. And Helen, when we're looking at how we, you know, the police can respond to reports like Baroness cases, and I know that was focused on the Met and that all forces are different, but what kind of, on a broad brush level, solutions would you like to see in, in terms of the specific remit of this interim review being about misconduct and disciplinary procedures, but also more broadly about making the police a better place for women and for different minority groups? I think, as, as Mark Rowley has recognised, some of the solutions are definitely within the hands of police leaders and indeed every, everyone in, in policing. And some, now I'm outside the police, I feel I can, can say this more clearly, are in the, the hands of politicians and society um, at large. Um, I think it's great that we're having these debates and more people are thinking, as I say, about what we ask of police officers, what we require them to do. And I hope more people will be thinking about actually the, the amazing, although extremely challenging career that it is, because policing needs to attract high quality, thoughtful, hardworking, resilient people who can deliver the policing that, that society deserves. Within policing, one of the big challenges is finding the time and the resources to develop its people so that they can take on these really important leadership roles because the demands on policing are relentless and pull it in many different directions. And at the moment, because of austerity, most forces didn't recruit for a number of years. And then with the uplift in police officers, they've been recruiting very quickly. So a very high proportion of police officers now have less than two years service. There's a gap in the number of detectives available. I hope what Dame Casey's report will do is to help more police officers and staff see professional standards departments where police officers are investigated as being really important roles that they want to go into. 
whereas maybe in the past it's been a bit of a Cinderella department because you need some of your best detectives there to gather the evidence to put cases together against those who shouldn't be within policing. You also need to have excellent and experienced police officers in training and in leadership roles so that new recruits coming in, new detectives who are being trained and so on, pick up the best practice, the highest standards, the most professional way and effective ways of going around their duties. Learn from the best rather than from those who maybe don't have the skills, the experience, the standards that you want to have spread across policing more broadly. So there are a lot of challenges. But I think the statements that Mark Reddy has come out with have been very clear about the commitment and determination within the Met to do the right thing. And I just hope all of us, including politicians, will support police leaders to do that. I can't remember whether it was Mark Rowley who was suggesting this or whether it was in Casey's report, but I read an interesting line as someone who's a big fan of Line of Duty, although not the ending, but all the way up until then. I saw something about the idea of having a unit like the anti-corruption unit, like the AC-12 that we've, as the public have seen, fictionalised, but focused on these issues of racism and misogyny rather than just about officers who have maybe been blackmailed or have become corrupt. What do you think about that as an idea, Helen? Um, Line of Duty is complete fantasy. It's fantastic telly, but there's so much about it that's wrong, including the professional standards of the officers who are portrayed in it. But, But the... I think where Line of Duty does do something useful is to maybe glamorise and create a sense of how important this work is. Police forces have had anti-corruption units that have looked at all types of behaviours by police officers. I've been responsible for them in the past. I've led investigations using the widest range of tactics into officers who have been committed committing sexual assault. And I've taken to officers to court for allegations of rape. And I know Mark Rowley has done the same and many other police leaders around the country. Obviously, those, those cases get publicity because of the bad conduct, as opposed to the highest standards of investigation that have gone into rooting out this bad practice. There needs to be more of it. There needs to be more of a sense of how invaluable this work is and also more recognition of the the bravery of officers who do come forward to report their colleagues. And Louise Casey's report focuses on that, on, on internal allegations of misconduct. Um, and that's how the vast majority of officers who do get sacked get revealed, because their colleagues have come forward to say, this is unacceptable, something needs to be done about it. And the challenge of Dame Casey's report is making sure that that action is taken in a way that encourages reporting and breeds confidence within policing to report on your colleagues. Because that's what all of us, um, both within policing and as members of the public, need police officers and staff to be prepared and able to do and supported when they do do that. I think I recall from the report that just 1% of officers who faced multiple accusations of misconduct were fired from the police in Baroness Casey's review of the Met. What do you make of that, Emily? I mean, I think it is appalling. The numbers, obviously, I don't know the details of the individual cases, but the ones highlighted in the review seemed like very clear-cut cases 
of multiple allegations of harassment or assault and haven't always ended in dismissal or even punishment. And I think that's partly because sometimes they would look at each allegation in isolation as opposed to, as you would in a normal workplace, look at them together to build up a, a narrative of someone who clearly shouldn't be in this workplace. So I think that's part of the problem. The review also mentioned that ethnic minority and black officers are much more likely to be disciplined and punished. And it and it looks like a system where a lot of men, and obviously in particular white men, can get away with actions that in other workplaces would be entirely unacceptable. And I think that's something that I think we focus this conversation on misogyny, but you're absolutely right to highlight that the Dame Casey's review wasn't just about misogyny, it was also about racism and discrimination in the force. And I know you spoke to one police officer who has a very interesting story about that. Would you, Emily, be able to tell yeah. us a bit more? Sarah, about... just before you go into that that story, can I just add a bit, having gone through yep. Louise Casey's report yesterday, she she absolutely rightly highlights the issue about making sure where there is a pattern of behaviour that's joined up. And I suspect some of the flaws she identifies are partly due to kind of systems and processes, partly due to police regulations, that if someone gets a written warning, that's only allowed to stay on their file for 12 months. But the broader picture of internal misconduct allegations shows that 33% end up with a case-to-answer finding. And I think in terms of sexual harassment or assault, it's 29% of allegations. So I think you, we need to just be a bit careful in this podcast that the 1% doesn't get taken out of context. Yeah, but it, it was 1% leading to dismissal rather than to a case to answer finding. But I just think we, we need to make sure we're properly putting context in the debate we're having if it's going to have a the kind of positive response that you would would want it to have rather than sensationalising. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Helen. So, Emily, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the case related to DC Evans? Detective Constable Usha Evans, her poster is right now all over the tube and on buses as part of a new recruitment campaign for the Met saying, you can make a difference, join the Met. And when I saw her poster, I remembered that I'd read about her case. She was one of the people who had sued the Met because of racism and sexism. The details of the case are not um, available, but an officer had allegedly mocked her religion, who had also been targeted another female officer as well. And so she has herself had quite a difficult time in the Met but she decided to be part of a recruitment campaign anyway because her view was the only way it's going to change is to recruit more officers like her who have had bad experiences with the police, both both as a civilian and in the force, and she wants more people like her who can change it from within. And I think that's a really positive note for us to end on. And bringing that over to you, Helen, I just wondered on a personal level, what made you make the decision to become a police officer and what did it mean to you? Um, When I got to my last year in university, I knew I wanted to work in the public service, making a difference in society. And I wanted to do something that I thought really mattered. I think every society in the world has policing of some sort. In the very worst, it upholds totalitarian states. It exploits the vulnerable and protects the powerful. In the UK, I think we have 
one of the best models of policing in the world, where, in the words of, of Robert Peel, the police are the public, the public are the police. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to uphold human rights. I wanted to protect the vulnerable. I wanted to make society a safer place because if we can feel safe, if we can all have confidence, and it's really important that we can all have confidence, if we ring 999, someone will come and help us and, and be on our side, then that enables so many other important facets of society to work more effectively. If you don't feel safe leaving your home, if you don't feel safe on public transport, then you can't access the healthcare, the education, the job opportunity, the cultural opportunities that our country, our cities have in such an abundance. And so I joined because I wanted to make a difference. And I worked with many brilliant, dedicated, selfless officers and staff. I also managed to work with others to drive some who shouldn't be police officers out of the organisation. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of what my colleagues achieved and continue to do day in, day out, 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year to keep our society one that we can all live in confidently. And of course, there's more to be done. Of course, it's really important to expose wrongdoing in the police. But I hope we can all play our part in making policing in the UK something we can all be proud of. Thank you so much to Helen and to Emily for your time and for joining us today for this discussion. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear us. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, you will find Emily's fantastic piece, as well as writing from Sheila Hancock, Deborah Hargreaves, Suktiv Sandhu and many more. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.